You're listening to Amphibicast. What's up, everyone? Episode 10. And I'm really happy about this episode because I've got Troy Goldberg with me. And he's agreed to do the show. And it's funny because off camera we were talking and I uh, I mentioned to someone else, I mentioned to another guest that I was kind of intimidated about having Troy on the show. And we were kind of talking, you know, before the, you know, before everything started recording. And um, <laughs> he had to reassure me that, like, you know, he wasn't going to, like, you know, beat me up or anything i was like no no it's not that it's just because you've got a really successful youtube channel and whatnot i was like i was a little intimidated because you're really big you know i guess like a big player in the hobby so um all that aside <laughs> troy thank you so much for being a guest on this show what's going on absolutely thanks for having me man not too much just uh, living the dream you know cool cool so um let's just get into it i mean tell us tell us your story how did you get into dart frogs you know what was the beginning what really got you into it from the start yeah, so uh, just growing up in uh, Northeast Ohio, I was always, you know, just in the in the woods and in the creeks, catching crayfish and frogs, fishing. You know, I just loved being in nature, um, just surrounded pretty much if I was catching gray tree frogs or leopard frogs or bullfrogs, whatever. I just always loved frogs. And uh, let's say my, maybe when I was like 10 or 12 years old, um, started using the computer and I had that like Encarta encyclopedia or whatever. And um there was dart frogs just that was the first time i saw them um and i was just like those are like unbelievably wicked um and uh never thought i'd really ever own them but you know i and then i'd see them at like zoos and stuff and i just thought they were so cool but i didn't realize that you could own them um until you know i was like 16 years old so it was uh in the year 2000 my dad um he just like brought me home this like 10 gallon tank already set up with like not, not a proper setup, but uh, it had some some a Cuban tree frog in it, and then it had like a cast, I don't know, I don't know even know how you pronounce it, but some sort of tiger leg marsupial frog, um, which is actually kind of a cool frog, but um, that was the first time I started keeping frogs, I guess, for an enclosure um, or as a pet. And, uh, you know, it, you know, after I had those frogs, I was like, these are cool, whatever, but um, I really liked red-eyed tree frogs. And then I saw you could own them, and then I had a couple of those, and then got some dart frogs, and it just kind of started there. Um, and, and my first setups were, were really bunk, but, uh, you know, it, you got to start somewhere. And it's it, it was still a learning curve, which, you know, I'm still learning today when I'm, when I'm setting up tanks or dealing with any new, new type of frog. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess, where it started, and um, I just kept them as pets, you know. I mean, do you have any interest in other species now besides dart frogs? Like, was it, you know, some people get into, like, I started off with, with tree frogs, and then I got into more, like, terrestrial species. I got into, you know, into pixies, and then different species of, you know, different species of Pac-Man. And then it just, for me, it finally culminated in dart frogs. I mean, do you have any other, like, non-dart frogs that you keep? So I, I do not at the moment, but... Um... In the well, it's uh, it's in the plans, and I'm gonna be building it on the channel. But I'm doing a large, um, a large vivarium that's gonna house a group of red eyes, and I think I may cohab with uh, Ufaga Pamilio blue jeans. Uh, just talking to Mike Novi, who's you know kind of like a tree frog guru, and uh, you know he's been down to Costa Rica. Um, I was talking to him about it and I was just like, I was like, you know, how are, are the blue jeans 
and the red eyes, are they different elevation or different altitudes? Are they different like humidities? You know, how close are they in proximity to each other? And he said, literally, bro, they're on the same tree. They're, you can find the familia literally at the buttress of the, of the tree, hopping around from one to three feet, one to four feet. And then from two to 10 feet, you can see red eyes everywhere. He's like, they're literally on the same tree. And I was like, you know, I'm not into the cohab, um, but I may try it. So just because I, I, while I do love red-eyed tree frogs, they were kind of the first frog, like the size dart frogs that I just thought were, they, they kind of just don't make sense to me. Like when I look at them, I'm like, why are you colored that way? <laughs> um, like just why? It, it's, they're just, as, as an artist, they're, it's just, I don't know if you could be more of an epitome of living art when you look at a, a red-eyed tree frog. Um, when they're awake, that is. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, you know, I've kept them before, and they are extremely boring. Um, Agreed. But Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are. They're extremely boring, and that's why I, I haven't had them in, kept them in 10 years. But um, I do, I'm setting, I want to set up a tank that's got pretty much their ecosystem all in one. It's going to be like a six foot by two foot by, or sorry, a five foot by two foot by four foot. Um, so it's a bigger tank. Um, I want to have a lot of aeroids, and I'm going to have a large water area for the tadpoles to grow up. It's going to be a, dry, a wet chamber and a dry chamber all in one. Um, so, you know, you'll be able to see them at night, which is cool, and see them, you know, during the – because they are actually fun to watch when they're breeding in the rain chamber. It's fun to watch them. Um, but then when they're sleeping, that's when the blue jeans will be out and be hunting and doing their thing. So that's kind of the idea behind it. I don't know if it will be successful or not. Um it's, it's going to be a lot of uh, trial and error in this, this build, um, but it should also be like something that a lot of people, well, I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like what my plans are. So it could be something new and cutting edge. Um, so yeah, I, to answer your question, I guess, sorry, I uh, get off subject, but yeah, I, I do, I do really like tree frogs. I really love the Cruzio Hyla as well. Um, Craspidopus and Calcarifer and uh, Sylvii, but that's kind of an expensive frog to be experimenting with. Agreed. So, Again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to try it out with some red eyes. And, uh, you know, if, if everything goes well and, you know, they're breeding there for a couple of years, and everything's going to plan, maybe then I'll graduate to some craspies or something like that. But because um, I, I do, the craspidopus is also one of just possibly the coolest frogs out there. I think as far as just looking at them, they're just unbelievable looking. Um so those would be the goal. I guess they were the initial goal. And then I was like, you know what? I can't be spending that much money on this. And, you know, it's, it's doing something that's kind of unheard of and not, you know, most people don't have the dry chamber, wet chamber, tadpole rearing all in one tank. You know, it's so to be experimenting with all this, it's, it, it's I'm a pretty big with, undertaking. Exactly. So, so yeah, I'm going to start it out with some red eyes and go from there. I mean, you know, I, I've discussed my, my opinions towards cohabbing, um, which is it's it's one of those things that no one's gonna ever really really gonna you know people are gonna have oh, different sure. opinions and whatnot. But I mean, yeah, what you're doing is on a very very massive scale, and sure. you know my argument has always been that well, you're not gonna cohab two species in your 55 gallon tank in, in your basement. You know what I mean? If you have a, right. a really really <laughs> large and a very very well planned, it's possible, yes. but. Yep. I mean, you know, what you're, what you're proposing is 
it's extremely well thought out. It's well thought out. It's large. You have a margin for error there that is 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 much bigger than keeping, you know, two dissimilar species in a ten gallon or a twenty gallon tank just because you you know you just because you can. Right. Exactly. So, yes. Um, yep. I mean, you. I'm sorry. sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, yeah. Normally, I agree with with your thoughts on cohabbing. I mean, I get messages all the time about you know should I mix these. It's, my answer. 99% of the time is, is no, you shouldn't, you know, it's, you've got a 37 gallon tank, you know, that's, think about not in the rainforest or in proximity to a habitat in the wild for a frog. I mean, that's a very small chunk. Um, don't slam a bunch of species in there, a bunch of, just cause you can do it and may be successful. It's probably not a good idea, you know? Um, so I, I do normally agree with you just in, uh, in my, in the situation that I'm, I'm trying to do. Yeah. It's, I have, I think I've done, like I said, I've thought about it and I think it is well thought, uh, well thought out, but it still may be a disaster. You know? I, I don't know. Exactly I hope, I hope point. I didn't, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say that to like put it, put a hex on it. I, oh, sure. No, you're okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm always, I mean, that's just my, my, you know, my personal opinion is I'm always reluctant to do that, but like under, you know, under the situation that you just explained, then it's, you know, then it's, it's, it's reasonable, you know, cause it, it has, yeah. a, you know, it's that's the end goal that you're looking to accomplish so you know it's a yeah. you know it's taking months to prepare doing research and whatnot for a bill is is a big difference than going to an expo and getting two species and then just plopping them in together exactly exactly yes so, i agree um yeah. now you tell us how you started how you started your youtube channel and, and how it kind of became what it is today so so yeah uh it started in 2008 um you know, just, uh, I was, I was on Dendro board a lot back then, um, posting all the time, pictures all the time. And, uh, I was taking, you know, some, some pretty low, low quality HD video with the camera I had at the time. And, um, but the files were way too big, um, to like save to, to anything really where you could share them. Um, and there was no, you know, sharing videos on Facebook or there was no Instagram at that time. Um, and you couldn't share videos on Dendroboard or any of the forum sites. So, you know, naturally just, I started a YouTube account, um, and, uh, just, just somewhere to dump the videos basically. So I could clear space on my camera and not lose the footage. Um, and not just have a stack of memory cards just sitting around for when the computer crashes and I have to get a new one and lose all that footage. So it was just somewhere where I felt, um, where I could permanently put, uh, my videos and, Luckily, it actually panned out, and YouTube's a lot bigger than it, than it was back then. And I still have those videos, the very first videos I posted back in 2008. Um, so that's that's where it started. Um, and uh, there was very very low um, production value on them. I didn't didn't edit anything. I didn't use like a software editing, nothing like that. Um, I uh, I literally just just posted a video. If it didn't come out good, I would shoot the whole video again <laughs> until it was like not really that many mistakes and then i just posted on there and um i didn't read comments i didn't look at views i didn't look at subscribers i didn't look at any of that it was really just post a video share it people can look at it and that that's how i pretty much did youtube till um 2018 when i started i guess i got a little more serious about the video quality and um the uh (laughs) quote-unquote content 
Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the uh, C word. The ever the, yes. the over the ever important content. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's an inside it's, joke. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's just the uh, and and now um, you know I, I I feel like I've got a little presence on YouTube. You know, I guess sort of a big presence on YouTube for dart frogs. Um, cause I mean, that's, that's exclusive to what my channel is dart frogs. I mean, a lot of the people that have much bigger followings, you know, they've got fish, they've got dart frogs, they've got lizards, they've got all kinds of different things where you hit a different, much of a niche markets where with me, it's, it's legit just dart frogs. So, um, I think I'm sort of big on, on that regard, um, on there, but in terms of YouTube and in terms of if people think I'm doing YouTube as like a job, they're, they're sadly mistaken. <laughs> I think that yeah. one of the things that, I mean, especially like younger people, um, YouTube wasn't always the media giant that it is now. I mean, when, like when I remember like the very first YouTube videos were like, it was the the guy singing the the Numa Numa song. Remember the the, the oh, guy yeah. in front yeah. of his keyboard. I mean, Numa that was dance. yeah, that was that yep. was that was YouTube, and people would look at like, what what are you doing, you know? Yeah, and then yeah. as time went by, it, it, it transformed from just being this, you know, video sharing program that people use to just do, you know, like what you said. And now it's, you know, you can, people have very, very successful YouTube channels that, yeah. you know, yeah, it's like having job. your own network. It wasn't always like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and my buddy, Mike, Mike, uh, he's, uh, alpha, alpha reptiles on YouTube, a good friend of mine. He kind of got me. Um, I guess back into YouTube, um, just trying to, you know, he was like, you used to post all the time. You should start posting again. There's not a whole lot of good dart frog info out there. And I know, you know, because he would come to me, um, asking for info for videos he was going to do because he has a couple dart frogs. So he would ask like some techniques and stuff. And I'd show him, he's like, well, dude, why don't you get back on there and start, start making videos, like posting your stuff. Like that's pretty valuable information that a lot of the hobby could benefit from. Even if, like, you know, you, you don't care about YouTube, you still just, I know you care about the hobby, and uh, it's a good way for you to just share some knowledge, and your techniques are, are kind of a lot different than what's, what, what most of the people do, and the, the end result is pretty good. So I was like, well, I guess I could do that. <laughs> so, so I just started posting a little more. Um, and, yeah, it's, 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 it's cool. I'm having fun, and it's definitely another thing um, that I'm, you know, I'm passionate about art, and I'm passionate about, frogs and um i'm starting to get you know i'm starting to get a little bit of the the video bug where you know i'm i'm following photographers and learning new techniques as far as editing and cool shots and cool angles it's like you know it's just i i, I do i'm a hobbyist at heart like there's many things that i, I collect and i get really into them <laughs> when i once it's like it just starts unfolding and i just i go on a tangent and get super into whatever i'm, I'm learning about now and uh, yeah, that's good. No, no. I, I mean, you you do a lot of builds on your YouTube channel, and you, you, we were talking a little bit before we started about you know your your background is in art. I mean, can you tell us about how you kind of translated some of those skills into your builds? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was always, I guess, young when I was like, and it just runs in my family. We're we're a bunch of artists and. I was always like just, I guess, decent at drawing and painting or whatever. And then um, when I went to college, um, you know, I got like this scholarship at Youngstown State, and uh, I took my first painting course. 
there, and I painted. I took a picture of a red-eyed tree frog, and I painted it. And I just, it came out really cool. It was really good. Um, or at least my professor thought it was really good. And then, so when it came around to the second project, you know, he was like, okay, so, you know, we're doing this. He gave us like a, a list of things to put in the project. And, um, he asked me what I was doing. I was like, well, I'm planning on doing whatever I said. And he's like, no, Isaac, I think, I think you should keep doing the frog thing. He's like, that was really successful. And, and, and it's so different. No one else, he's like, I, I've been a professor down here for 25 years. No one's ever come in and paint, you know, a picture of a frog and it came out and looks like a photograph. He's like, you got something going there. So, um, it just turned into basically my five years at school. Um, I just painted dart frogs and red-eyed tree frogs. And it's as far as when I was painting. Um, so yeah, it turned in, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't drawn anything else for a long time. Um, but, uh, and I haven't painted since 2013. I think it's the last time I did a painting. But I've been channeling, I guess, the art into the builds, you know, three-dimensionally for the habitats. I mean, there definitely is um, a rhyme and a reason for the way that, you know, my, my builds come out uh, a certain way. It's not by accident. Um, you know, I, I do have some sort of spatial recognition for, you know, your composition with with whatever, you know, and sometimes people are like, well, what are your plans for it? It's like, I have no idea. I got to get the wood. I, once I get my wood, um, then I can start playing with, with how I want the, you know, the, the actual background to come out. And I, I have to have it in front of me to, cause that's basically sketching for me, um, where someone may sketch out a drawing of a, of a tank the way they want it to look. Um, I sketch with the wood three dimensionally, just placing it in places and it look, it doesn't really translate in the videos that I've, the build videos that I've done, because I, I don't want to show that whole process. It may be an hour, an hour and a half of me just taping wood and placing wood in all these different angles and directions, where on a video, someone, someone would be bored to tears and just be like, okay, man, show me the end result. Um, so I, I kind of skip those, those, um, portions in the video. I'll show like a little bit tidbit here and there, but that's basically the sketching for me on a, on a tank. Um, and, and I do, when I am building, I, I definitely always try to not do the same thing every time. Um, I like to try something new or, you know, a different, uh, you know, just some different technique or, uh, a different way of texturizing the background or throwing, you know, like this last boat I'm, I did, uh, I'm doing for the channel. I, I threw some tree fern fiber into the dry lot just to give it some, weird texture i've never done that before you know i i, I don't just because i ha i've had one tank that say it came out successful i don't want to do every single tank that same exact way you know what i mean oh yeah i mean i've noticed that it, it's, it's a really good example like what you said about the wood because that's really like the one variable i mean you're never going to get two pieces of wood that are exactly alike and then depending on which like which species you go with like if you go with like a mopani or um What's the other one that the um? Yeah, I try not to use Mopani because it's it's always it's, uh, it's molded really, for me. It's really it's I, I've always had good luck with it. It's really heavy. My problem has always been it releases it just releases like so many tannins. So if you put yeah. it anywhere near water, that water is just I mean obviously in a vivarium the water is usually going to end up doing that anyway. But um, yeah, it, it's you a lot of times I, yeah I, I find I've done that myself. Whereas you'll you'll take a piece of wood and you'll kind of base the whole build around that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, 
I know that you do place a lot of values on, on aesthetics and that also translates into your plant selection. I mean, can you tell us about some of your, like some of your preferred plants that you like to incorporate? Yeah. So, and and lately I've just like the majority of the hobbyists, I've kind of, uh, got bitten by the, uh, the aeroid bug, um, which I've always used, you know, philodendrons and, um, small, but usually the smaller philodendrons in my builds, um, and I've gone through phases, you know, like I'd say five or six years ago, I was really into very small plants, but just a lot of them. Like I love um, Peperomia marginella and some of the Margravias, that, the smaller ones. Um, but it's funny that I like a lot of the smaller Margravias, but my favorite one is Centenisi, which is one of the biggest ones. Um, it's, uh, But yeah, I, I like stuff that covered the background in, you know, like the shingling type plants or plants that they looked full and lush, but they were, you were still able to see your hardscape. Uh, they, instead of covering up a background, they became accents to the background or they formed around the wood and you'd see that wood still, it would still pop off the background. Um, so, and that, that's, they go hand in hand, I guess, as far as I think the two most important things when I'm doing a build is the the wood layout and hardscape i think that's key and then secondly is how you're going to plant them and where you're going to place plants um and a lot of that like especially with bromeliads when you're using bromeliads they can eat up so much space and completely cover a really interesting portion of the tank um and you know but you, it's, it's, you get stuck between a rock and a hard place because you're like, this is a really cool vermilion. I have to use this in this build. And this is a really cool one. I have to, and you, and you start placing them and then it gets over, it gets, to me, it can get overcrowded easily with vermilions, especially some of the larger ones. Um, and, it, and if they're, especially if they're like wild colors, if they've got some crazy reds and pinks and some blue or maroons, it, sometimes I think the crazy wild ones, uh, can actually take away and be too much focus on the on the bromeliad, where you lose the hardscape and lose some of the. So that's why lately I've been using like mainly just simple green, um, simple shape, no spiky stuff on them, <laughs> just like uh, <laughs> just smooth leaved green bromeliads, because um, I I don't want them to be the focus of the of the build. But um, getting it. Sorry, I got a fun little tangent there. No, no, that's some fine. of the other plants. Fine. Um, yeah, I, I really like the, uh, uh, was it the, uh, Philodendron Veracosa Mini is one of my favorites. I've been using it a lot. Um, and also a Philodendron Lincoln Park is a great one. Um, it grows really quickly and it doesn't get too big too fast. It's easier to trim. Um, but that's, yeah, I'd say I've been, I've been incorporating less bromeliads lately. Um, instead of just you know, throwing 10 bromeliads on a background and a bunch of little small vines, I've been doing more like three bromeliads and just all of one type. So I feel like if you're in, you know, if you're out there in the jungle, you're not going to see in, in a, in a two by, in a two foot cube, you're not going to see six different types of bromeliads. You know what I mean? You're going to probably see one type in that little, that little box where, you know, cause they, they pop and they grow like crazy there. Um, but you're not going to see six different styles or types of colors there. Um, so that's why I've been kind of sticking to like one type of bromeliad, and then I'll put different size, some larger, some smaller, 
some smaller vines, some moss, and some leaf litter. It, when you when you really do think about my my builds, they're very simple, um, but I, I just try and execute them to the best of my ability, um, and and I, I try not to uh, get impatient with the build and just like start throwing stuff together. You know, if if it starts getting like if you don't want to work on it and you don't want to don't want to plant it or you're annoyed you have to do something to it, you're like, oh, I gotta go do this to the tank. Don't work on it. Wait till you're ready to work on it. Um, you know, don't rush it. I guess is my what I would say, um, and you'll have a, a better result. At least that that's how it is for me. Cool. Um, now getting to some of the species that you you choose. I mean, you're really big into obligates, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'd say my collection it's it's sort of divided into half um, with the dendrobatids and then euphaga. Um, and I have, you know, in my frog room I've got uh, 24 tanks, and I think I've got um, yeah, about 12 that are dendrobatids, and then I have the, the phyllobates, uh, terribilis mint. Um, and then the other 12 are large obligates and then Camellia. But, um, yeah, I was, I was for the first 12 years in the hobby, I was a tank guy through and through. That's all I had was tanks, um, and Terrabillas. Um, I loved the bigger frogs. They were always bold. I could always monitor them, monitor them. Um, you know, if, if something was going south or a frog was looking rough, you saw it pretty, pretty much immediately. And you could, it was easier to, to, you know, have it recover. Um, or you could, you could medicate it or pull it and separate it and, you know, just hope it gets better. Um, and, um, I did a trade with a guy, um, about, yeah, 2012. I picked up some Veradero, some Ranitomeo Veradero and the imitator Veradero. And they were really cool. I took a couple of cool pictures of them when I first got them, and then I never saw them again. Um, <laughs> and that's that's why I do not own any Rantamea, is because I never I, I've owned two. They're both imitators, um, and I never saw them. Uh, and when I did, <laughs> they darted so quickly for cover that I was just like, "This is why do I even have these frogs?" Um, but then somebody I was talking to was like, I mean, if you like the small frogs and you think someone will like, you should try out Pamelia. I was like, okay. And the guy that I traded for the uh, Veradero, he also had some Bastimentos. So I got the Bastimentos, and, um, yeah, it was just a game changer for me as far as some of the smaller dart frog species. Because, you know, I was expecting them to be, I was like, eh, I'll try it out. I was expecting them to be like Anatomia. In my experience, and I, I've talked to people that they're in it to me are as bold as tanks and they're out all the time. That just wasn't the case for me. So, um, I, I just, I can't, I can't do it again. I also don't keep erratas for that reason. But, um, yeah, so with the Bastimentos, um, they were always out, extremely bold. Um, if I opened the door and grabbed my camera, they didn't care. Uh, it was just really, really a cool new, I guess, uh, path in the hobby for me uh, that I, I never I never thought I was going to own any obligates or smaller frogs um, and uh, yeah I just I really really enjoyed them and then when I they started breeding and I started seeing their their courtship and the way that the, the males move when, when they're courting is just unlike any other dart frog um, they almost like the way they walk um, 
it's it's almost robotic like just really really neat uh and then watching the, the whole rearing the tadpole process everything was just just uh yeah game changer for me and it kind of unfolded from there um and uh, then i got into the larger I, you know after breeding Camellio for two two and a half years I jumped into some of the larger obligates, with the, like the Histrionica and the Sylvatica. And to me, it's just like keeping Bromeliad. Besides, one factor is that the Bromeliads, you don't want to have Bromeliads that are spiky. Because their skin, the heavier obligates, you know, they're in and out of those Bromeliads like all day long. So their skin, being a heavier frog, gets scratched really easily on that. And you can get little scratches and they can turn into bacterial infections and you can get a disaster in that tank. Um, that's the only difference I'd say from keeping Camellia or keeping Histrionica, besides price, of course, <laughs> um, is, is the, just the type of Camellia you use. You do want to have soft edge. But other than that, they're, they're the same. And, and I think even as bold as like some, you know, Bastamentos are a very bold Camellia. Um, you know, I also have Rio Calubre Pamilio, which are, um, they're definitely on the shire side for Pamilio. But, you know, for how bold Basti are, you know, my Bullseye, my Lamani, the Blue Histos, my Anchikaya, they're on, they're like tanks. I mean, they're out all the time. I open the tank, they do not care. They're just right up in my face. I'll put the camera up in their face. They don't care. They're, so for me, as an artist, loving, being a visual person and, Love seeing the frogs. Um, you know, the large obligates for me are, are definitely, um, they're, they're my favorite. And, and the way they walk, you know, just not, let alone, they, they are just absolutely gorgeous animals. But when you see the large obligates stalking the female, just walking around, it, there's no other dart frog that moves like them. Like, it's just so cool. Um, and it just, that's kind of did it for me. And, you know, that's where my collection is today. But, you know, that being, you know, I got away from some of the tinks, you know, back in like, two, I started selling some in 2014 and 15, selling some of my adult pairs. But when I moved my frog room from my house out to the garage, I got quite a bit more space. <laughs> I went from uh, 16 tanks to 24 tanks. And a lot of those tanks I filled with tinks that I had to sell. You know, I, I, I bought Brazilian yellowheads again. I bought citronella again. I recently just got, uh, a trio of extremely nice Oyapox. Um, I also picked up Vanessa, you know, so I, I still, and I picked up the Therabilis this past year too. Um, so, you know, having the more space, I definitely missed some of those dendrobatted frogs that, and the follow babies, um, that I, I had to pick them back up. You know, I was like, I, I'm not just going to fill these with, with obligates just to fill with obligates. You know, I, I miss those frogs. I think the Brazilian yellowhead is, is one of the most, just absolutely stunning Tinctorious morphs in the hobby. And, um, you know, I actually can never, I can't believe I actually sold them <laughs> back in the day. So they were like, the second I came out here, I was like, I'm getting Brazilian yellowheads. Like I missed them. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I still am very much into, uh, Tinctorious and, you know, the, the larger frogs. And I guess the, I mean, my, my large obligates are, are, are they, they rival some of the, uh, some of my tanks in size, but yeah, they're, they're just so cool. Now, do you think that, I mean, different people I speak to have different ideas in terms of where you should be 
as a keeper as it relates to like what you keep. So, I mean, you, like you're really obviously big into a Faga. Do you think that a beginner could handle them? Or do you think that there's really something that they should work their way up to? So, I think that a beginner that does the proper research can definitely keep them. Um, and I say proper research with not just like, I'm going to read a care sheet, I'm going to watch a couple of videos on YouTube, and, and I, I, I got it. You know, like actually talk to some people and have some, go see some somebody set up, really grill, you know, and find someone that you can become friends with that, that has them and really grill them. Um, try and understand, because there's, there's a few things that, that are significantly different, you know, let alone price. Um, that's the, the one thing, you know, and I would also say for a beginner, like, you, you want to be sure that you're going to be in this hobby for at least, you know, I'd say a few years when you start spending some of the money that, that these frogs fetch. Um, you know, I definitely would say large obligates do not buy for a beginner just because of how much they cost. I mean, it's a lot of money to be spending and you don't even know if you're going to, if you're going to enjoy the hobby. Um, so I would say if, if you wanted to, some familiar or something, but, um, you know, things like, um, it's not so much the adults keeping alive and thriving, you know, they're, they're just like Ranitomea. And I know lots of beginners that have Ranitomea. Um, you know, they also are, have to do research and understand that these frogs are going to, you're going to need not only fruit fly cultures, but some springtail cultures as well. Um, but things like UVB are, is, is pretty important with the obligates. Um, you know, and, and the microphone, I'd say the two most important things for the obligates as opposed to some of the other, like, like Tinctorius that isn't necessary, um, is like UVB and your, uh, your microfauna, which is, which is key. Um, and then also bromeliads, because the Ufaga and the bromeliads where Tinctorius do not. Um, so those, you know, those three things, uh, and like if I, if a beginner just asked me, can I keep familia and say, sure. Um, breed and culture springtails. Once you get that down, also breed and culture fruit flies. Once you get that down, make sure your cage is escape proof and there's not a, any gap at all for them to get out because they will get out. Um, make sure it's escape proof and, and you'll be fine. You know, because as far as like humidity and temperature, I, I keep them, all my frogs in the frog room are all on the same nesting schedule. The temperature is obviously all the same. I do put obligates up on the top rack. Uh, that, that being said, I do have a few obligates on the, the bottom rack. But, um, you know, they can, it, it's interchangeable as far as their, their habitats besides their um, th That's all you really need to get down. But the problem is with the obligates is being able to rear and raise healthy offspring. Um, you know, vitamins is a big deal for the offspring, you know, um, you know, getting SLS or MDD is, is what used to be a huge problem back in the day with, with Ufaga, but the vitamins have come a long way. And also it's kind of been, uh, there's been a couple of papers on, you know, the water quality and the bromeliads, you know, you, you're supposed to flush them, you know, somewhat often, you know, I'd say every twice a month, you know, you're going to want to flush the bromeliad, just stick a, your mist, you know, your pump mister or something in there and, just spray so you get that old water out and fresh water in. Um, SLS is, you know, attributed to water quality uh, big time. That wasn't always known. Um, so, so those things are going to, you know, yield healthy offspring. 
and also just having a ton of springtails. Because, um, I mean, if you think Tinctorius morph out small, just take a look at a freshly morphed Escudo. <laughs> it is unbelievably small. <laughs> Tiny. Um, they're so small. Um, like, like half of my pinky nail, like they're so tiny. Um, and, and that's where the, the real battle is with new fathers keeping the babies alive and, and making sure they're healthy. Um, cause they can have some other issues that the Tinctorius don't, but you know, that's, it's, it's other than that, it's, it's just the money thing. <laughs> they cost more and it's for a good reason. They're, they're, they're a lot less abundant, you know, out yeah. of, uh, out of a Tinctorius pair, I could get a, over a hundred froglets in a year, and out of a Ufaga pair, a good year's twelve to fifteen. You know, um, so it's understandable why those frogs, because you you can't control. You know, obviously you're not in control of their their offspring. They, they do all the the, the parenting, so um, they're in full control. So it's understandable why they are more expensive. Now, we, we kind of touched on, again, before we kind of got into the conversation while we were recording, um, yeah. UVB. I know that was something that was important to you that you wanted to discuss. Can you just kind of elaborate sure. on how you incorporate UVB into your, you know, yeah. it's into your regular routine? Yeah. So, so I'd say eh, not all the time. I get lazy. But, <laughs> we, um, all do. Li- we all do. <laughs> once a week would be perfect, but uh, I probably do it, I'd say, more like twice a month. Um, I have a it's, a, it's a bird lamp, and it's got, like, a flexible neck. I don't have any UVB above, like, screen on any of my tanks set up on a timer or anything. So um, it's basically I slide my, my sliding glass door open. I put the bird lamp in there. It's got a 5% UVB. Um, avian sun is the bulb. And I'll put, and it's, you know, it's just a regular little light bulb, um, you know, four-inch light bulb, whatever. And I'll put it in the tank, shut the door, and I tape off the, the gap there for the hour that I'm going to have that UVB in there. And, you know, I'll put it in a random spot in the tank, just kind of right in the middle of the tank, shining towards the background. I won't see any frogs there at that time. And then I'll go around, do my thing, feed tadpoles or feed other frogs, whatever I'm doing. And then I'll come back to that tank. And the two frogs, they actively are seeking this UVB. They will go directly to that light and just sit there. And it's almost like they're in a trance state. I will open the door, move my hand towards them. They don't move. They're just sitting there soaking it up. And, you know, I don't think that UVB is a necessity, but it doesn't hurt um, if you're doing it an hour, you know, an hour a week. You, know, you could definitely give the frog sunburn if you're using two too powerful of a bulb and you're doing it too often um so that's why i say i mean an hour a week even even 25 minutes a week um is it's gonna do for me what i've noticed with them one is color the color on the froglets all they come out much more bright um and it seems to some somehow get they after i do like a uvb bath it always seems like I get eggs the next day from, even if it's like a newer, like a newer pair that I have that's not currently breeding. I'll give them UVB, check the film cans in a couple of days, and there's eggs. Oh, it's it's crazy how it happens, and that's what made me start. Someone suggested to me to do that. Um, you know, I was like, because I was asking them, like, you know, how long did it take for yours to get going? My redheads are, I've had them for you know about eight months. They should be of age, and I've heard calling a few times about no eggs, and they're like. 
throw a UVB bulb in there just for an hour one day and then come, you should have eggs within the week. And I did. Um, so ever since then, I, I don't know the, the whole science behind it. Um, I do know some of the red frogs, the people who give their frogs, like I know a guy who actually takes his frogs out into the sun um, for about an hour a week. And his frogs, and every time I get a frog that's red from him, they're just cherry red. And then I don't do that, <laughs> and they lose some of their color. Um, so I know that the UVB definitely helps red frogs retain that color. Um, uh, carotenoids will only do so much, but a lot of, and you can feed your frogs as much carotenoids as possible, and they still will lose some of that red color. Um, but if you're doing carotenoids and uh, UVB, you, you've got a much better chance of those red frogs keeping that color. But um, I, I only give the UVB bass to my to my large obligates. I don't even do it with my small ones, um, just because I, I don't seem to have any issues with them at all. Um, but but yeah, it's it's definitely something. I think is important. Um, just and, and I think it's telling that when I, like I say, when I put that light in there, and there's no frogs in front of that light bulb, and then I come back in 20 minutes, and they're five inches from the bulb, just sitting there, like just soaking it up. It's it's wild. I've posted pictures on Instagram and stuff before. My blue histos doing it. Um, they were like three inches from the bulb, just sitting there. Like it, you just you you imagine they're saying. Ah, <laughs> just like suck because <laughs> that's what they look like. They're just—it looks like they're in heaven, just enjoying, and like nothing can bother them at that moment. Um, which is, you know, the fact that they're actively seeking it. Um, you know, if you put like a a whole strip, if you've got a strip of screen on your tank and you put a UVB on it, you know, it's hard to tell if they're actively seeking it because you, you know there's so much area in that tank. But with this little bird lamp, I mean, it's literally like a, a four-inch bulb. And they get right in front of it. It's like, you know, they're, they're sourcing where that light's going. They go to it and they just sit there, which to me says that the frogs, they want it, you know? I mean, at the very least, we, we don't often talk about environmental enrichment with frogs. I think maybe mm -hmm. because in the dart frog hobby, especially in a naturally planted vivarium, there's a lot going on. So, sure. I mean, it... You know, it could stand to reason that, you know, you, I mean, UV exposure could be a form of enrichment. I mean, you know, we all, human beings enjoy, a, well, most of us anyway, <laughs> most of us enjoy yeah. a sunny day. It just, it, it feels sure. invigorating. You're out and you're exposed to the sun. Um, yep. It would be interesting if it was just purely behavioral, you know, if it was a, um, yeah. if it was just a behavioral response that cued them to be in a better mood and facilitate breeding, who knows? Yeah, but, yeah, it could. It's it, it is it, it's interesting, you know, the way we kind of rethink, um, you know, old old ideas like you know amphibians don't need any kind of exposure to UVB. Uh, you know, it's it, the ideas are changing now, you know, especially sure. now that we have um, we have more testable consequences. You know what I mean? Like yeah. now that there's actually been being studies done into this, you know, yeah. people scientists can identify. All right, well, you know which animals benefit from it, which ones don't. Um, sure. I mean, just to go, like, to go kind of back into the time machine, one of the really, I just, I mentioned this because I was going through my, my basement and I found it. It's, um, do you remember the Vitalite from the 80s? Yeah. Yeah, yep. I found an old Vitalite. And that was <laughs> the full-spectrum lighting at the time, which was supposed yep. to provide, which was supposed to simulate full full-spectrum sunlight. 
now yeah. moving forward, it was, I guess, good at the time, but now it's, you know, no one uses that anymore. But yeah, yeah. With, um, <laughs> You know, with 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 the science that we have now, I think if people get like a much better quality product, plus you're also getting something that's not necessarily as dangerous as it could have been before. So, I mean, yeah. UV exposure, even like a, you have, it, there's so much that goes into it. You're not just pointing the lamp into the enclosure. It depends on you know how far away is it from the substrate. You know, if you're putting it over over glass, it's not going yep. to penetrate through the glass. You know, but exactly. it's 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 interesting. It, it's I, I mean, I for one would love to learn more about it so yeah. i mean if, if we've got any uvb experts out there you know just email me and we'll <laughs> we'll we'll talk about it um yeah. and that's that's why i put the bird a bird lamp inside the tank just because i know if you go over a screen you're filtering that light you don't know how far they have to be away to get those nanometers of, of uvb exposure when i'm putting the light directly in there you know, there's nothing filtering. It's just raw UVB light coming right on them. So that's why, you know, I only do about an hour a week if if I'm not being lazy. So probably like two hours, I'd say a month. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's why I do it that way. So so I don't have to worry about the filtering over glass or or screen. Um, you know, just it's 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 ugly and it's not a neat and clean way of doing it. But I do think it's effective. Well, that's that's interesting because that was going to kind of segue into my next question. And what do you think? Uh, I have my answer. I just want to see what yours is. What's the most important tool that you use regularly in your frog room? Like of all the little, you know, things that you have in there, what do you like? What's your go-to tool? What's the thing that you reach for the most? The glass cigar or candy tubes. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if it's really a tool, but. For catching frogs, yeah, I, it's probably the thing I grab most. Um, I'm think, thinking about it right now. Um, is yeah, it's for catching small frogs. It's so easy. It makes, you know, when I when I before I was using these glass tubes, um, catching frogs was sometimes pulling off the doors, pulling off all the plants, pulling out all the leaf litter, and getting this frog to hop in a cup. Um, with the glass tubes, you literally it's they can't really see it, so you just literally just go right over them and they hop right up in it. It's on, it makes catching familio and some of the smaller frogs. Um, it makes a nightmare turn into a dream, honestly. Um, and that's, that's probably, that's what I use most in my, I'd say besides like a funnel for funneling fruit flies into the cup. Um, I, I have, I have two. Um, I use, I mean, people have not kind of know, I, like I've discussed it a couple of times on the, you know, the show in passing. I'm, I'm also into, into arachnids and yeah, a lot of times when you buy a spiderling, you know, a sling, it comes in a dram vial. So I've got three or four dram vials that are kind of comparable in size to, you know, glass tubes, test tubes, etc. And those come in really, really handy if I have to move someone because I just kind of plop it in front of them. I'll, you know, I'll yeah. take like a little, you know, like a, like a magnolia leaf or something like that. Just kind of give them a really, really gentle kind of tap yeah. and they'll hop right up into it. That yeah. and my favorite tool... My LED flashlight. Oh, yeah, I use that as well. Yeah, because <laughs> I was thinking yeah. about it. I'm like, what do I use in my room every single day? What's And it's it's the flashlight. I've got like a little four-inch like LED flashlight, a couple of AA yep. batteries. I mean, it goes to batteries like crazy, but, you know, for look, look, a, looking for eggs or, you know, you've got you like a... you got to look into a chargeable one. Yeah, yeah, they have, yeah. Yep, that's what I, I upgraded to this because, yeah, I'm the same way. All the time I use that. 
Uh, sorry for interrupting, but no, 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 saying, no. Yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta move up, move up to a, a chargeable. Um, and by the way, it's incredibly bright. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I was sick of buying batteries. So yeah, it just, it plugs into like your little mini USB. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 that's always, if you're out there, invest in a good flashlight. And I actually yeah. got to use both, um, yesterday I have, um, my my sex trio of uh, Epipetabates anthonii are really really conditioned to getting fed. They sit right on the same magnolia leaf every day, and as soon as I go near that glass, they're like, like remember the old like remember the old episodes of the Muppet Show when the oh, Muppets yeah. would just kind of like we just go like flying through the air. That's what they do. So I have to open the door really really slowly, or else they will just come like they'll just come flying out of the enclosure at me, like looking for food. So yeah. every so often I, I have it where despite my best efforts, I will get one that will get loose. And my eight year old daughter did a serious like assist. Um, I had it go underneath. I keep them on a baker's rack and it had gone underneath yeah. the bottom of the baker's rack. So I'm like, Oh boy, get me the flashlight, get me the dram vial. And I, I ended up reaching for, um, reaching for a snake hook, which yep. very, I mean, this sounds chaotic, but I, I, I was very, very, very gently just kind of coaxing it out from underneath there, got it yep. into the dram vial, got it back into the, you know, it, it's, yep. it, it, it's really frustrating because like, this, you know, despite all my efforts, I'm like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But <laughs> you, you open, you open that, yeah, you open that tank yep. up every day. And that's where they go. Yeah. That's yeah. They, so they always go right back under the rack i mean i've i've destroyed my frog rooms over the years from frogs doing that mm-hmm. and I, you know i keep a lot of stuff on that bottom shelf they just always they jump out and then you go to grab them and they go and they go right under the bottom rack always um and that's actually why i have this like that black and in, in my frog i mean you can see it in my frog room that that black shield that goes like the white shield but i also use it on the from the bottom the bottom rack all the way to the floor, um, it's pretty much lined. There's no gaps where frogs can get under. It's supposed to be designed that way, but a couple weeks ago, I had a, my fine spot Luke male. I went to grab a picture, and he hopped right out, and then he went. He found the smallest gap, and he went under the rack. I destroyed the frog room looking for him for about two and a half hours. Could not find it. I chalked it up to being a loss, and then came back the next day. Was, I, I poured some water on the floor to hopefully... You know, maybe he would find the water, came back the next day, didn't find him. And then the next day around midnight, I played a, uh, it was the Lucamellis, so I played a Lucamellis call on YouTube. And lo and behold, he, luckily it was the summertime because in the wintertime, my garage is dry as the Sahara. Um, so he, uh, I played that call and lo and behold, he was under my desk, which is on the complete opposite side of his tank. And he came hopping out, strutting along, like looking like, who's, who's, who's calling right now? He was like ready to fight whoever was calling. I was like, "You son of a!" I grabbed it real quick, and it un- somehow it did, it had no discoloration. It was a little dusty and had a couple of dog hairs on it. Yeah. But I yeah. uh, gave it a quick bath, and it's back in the tank. So hasn't bred since then. I think it was a little traumatic uh, yeah. situation for it. I, I can't but, imagine uh, associating calls with you know with the, that. I mean, that oh. would deter me if I, if 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 I heard calls yeah. now, but. I'm yep. just I'm just thinking of um do you remember the old Warner Brothers cartoons with um this guy found 
I mean, I'm dating myself big time, but the guy found a, a frog on a construction site in a shoebox. And he opened the oh, shoebox, yeah. and the frog came out and started singing. And as soon as he would show it to somebody else, the frog would just sit there and do nothing. So the guy went like, <laughs> he, he, remember that? He tried going to like, yep. like uh, you know, like uh, like radio stations, Hollywood Age. Everybody looked at him like he was nuts. And the frog He's would come out nuts. and go, hello, my baby. Hello, my... Yep. And that's, that's what I picture your frog doing. So. Yep. Yep. It's... I mean, and and my Luke's particularly whenever out they they wouldn't call for a couple of weeks. I would play one call on YouTube, and they would just start. He would go nuts. He'd just start calling like crazy, strutting around the tank. Like who's who else is in my home calling? Like he was ticked off. So uh, I was trying to do it the night before. I was playing calls, hoping that he would call back or come out, and he just didn't. But then the next day, you know, over 24 hours later, he came out. So. Um, I was excited. I thought for sure it was a goner because, you know, but luckily the garage that night, because it was a, a really humid day here, um, the, the humidity was like 70 in the garage, so it was, it was fine. But um, in the wintertime, it's like 10% humidity out here. It's it's so dry. So if the frog gets out, it's got about 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I've had, um, uh, in the past, in the past four years, I think I've had maybe two escapes. And I, I, yeah, and it's, it's, it's so sad. You find them and they look, yeah, yeah, they look like little beef jerkies, you know, which is, it's, it's frustrating because I mean, obviously, you know, it, it, it it is my fault somehow. But you get mad at them. You get mad at them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Like, well, why would you jump out? Yeah, (laughs) I know. I know. It's, it's, it's extremely (laughs) frustrating. I mean, I, fortunately I have, I'll just, I'll, this isn't actually a, a frog story, but it's it's in a similar vein. Um, my frog room's in my basement, and it occupies about half of it. And you know, part of it is is it's it's basically it's a finished basement. And mm-hmm. um, I had bought a spiderling about two years ago, and this was a particularly expensive spiderling. And as I went to rehouse it from the dram vial into its enclosure, it bolted and went underneath the cabinets. Oh, no. So now I'm thinking, okay, I have a serious problem here because, number one, I have a lost tarantula. I mean, my, my wife and kids will, all right, the, if they find a frog, they're, they're cool with that, but they're not really <laughs> arachnid-friendly, which is understandable. But sure. I ended up I ended up ripping the... Um, like the, the kick plates underneath the cabinets, I ripped them out. Yep. And I'm in there with my flashlight, and lo and behold, there it was. This little three-quarter inch sling was still there. It had only, because I kept telling myself, all right, just be cool. You know, you know what they do. It's not going to go disappearing. It's going to go to the first little dark spot it can find, and it stay there. And I got it. I got it safely back in. It yep. was a nerve-wracking experience. Uh, I have learned a lot from that. Um. But I had to explain to my wife what happened to the cabinets. Kick, kick plate. And I said, I said, well, you know, we had a we had a really bad. I get water in my basement from time to time. I said, ah, so we had a really bad storm, and you know, we just rotted out. So, <laughs> oh, oh, that was good, good, good. That was good, good job. Like, and then I, I think maybe like a year ago, I, I confessed to her. She goes, really? I said, oh, yeah, you know. But yeah. It's it's frustrating. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, um, I mean, you obviously have a, a large collection. You have what do you have now? You have twenty-four tanks going. Twenty-four tanks in the garage, and uh, one. I have a hundred eighty-gallon tank in the house. So. 
So now, 25 total tanks. What are some of the challenges that you have, like, maintaining? I mean, because for me, that's a large collection. I've got um, two, four, six. I, I've got about 10, which is, I like to think, like, for, for me, that's manageable. But, you know, yeah. with a larger collection like yours, like, I mean, how much time during the week are you putting into maintaining everything? So, I mean, I've got everything sort of automated. Um, I don't need to be out here a ton of, like, that much time. I usually, um, you know, because I work during the day, most of the day, um, and then when I get home, I have to help uh, my girlfriend with uh, with our son, and then he goes to bed around 8, so I usually come out here around 8 o'clock um, and just, uh, I'll feed during the, those hours, um, check on tadpoles, you know, now, some days, if I'm if I've got to like do maintenance and clean up tanks, you know, I could be out here for three, four hours sometimes. Um, but I mean, as far as like goes, you know, feeding frogs and checking tanks for eggs, I mean, you know, that can only take a total of twenty minutes to a half hour. Um, you know, but if I if it, if it's in a perfect world, I do like to sit out here while I feed and just watch everybody, make sure everyone's hunting and everything, everybody looks good. You know, no one's. You know, you don't see any wounds or sores or anything, and they're moving correctly. You know, it's it's. I like to be able to do that, but uh, I probably get to do that. I'd say two days out of the week, um, where I can actually sit out here and and watch everybody eat. Um, but yeah, I guess yeah, the, the the challenge would be would be that you know when I when I can't do that all the time. Um, so sometimes you you catch a frog that's a little skinny or it's got something going on a little too late. Um, that's happened for sure. Uh, but, but you know, it's, it's just part of, that's part of the hobby. You know, sometimes you, especially with some of these shire frogs, you just, you, if, they, if you don't get to see them hunt, um, you know, you basically got to go by when you see them, just make sure their weight's healthy, you know, and if, if you, if you don't see a frog for, cause there's fro some frogs, I mean, I don't see for, you know, four or five days, and then I see it, and I'm like, oh, looks good, very healthy, chubby, um, and then there's sometimes you see me like, ooh, that doesn't look good, um, I gotta deworm, or, you know, do something, somehow medicate this frog, um, but sometimes, you know, you catch it too late, um, that, that's, that's, I guess, the problem with, I guess, having a larger collection is, especially, also with froglets, too, I mean, if you have a ton of froglets you're raising, um, you know, Obviously, you're gonna you're gonna lose more because you can't, you know, you're not raising every one of them individually, and making sure every single, you know, if someone's got one pair of tinctorias, they're gonna make sure that every single one of those froglets is healthy. But if you've got ten pairs of tinks, twelve, however many are breeding, and you've got hundreds of froglets, it, it's impossible to make sure every single one of those are eating. Um, you know, you you just you don't have that don't have that much time in the day. Um, so that that's you know I guess that's that's the biggest challenge I would say. Other than that, I mean, as far as my lights and everything, they're on. Um, I have like a little smart plug timer, just connects on my phone, really easy. Um, tadpoles, the way I do with the communal tadpole setup, um, it's I spend about I don't know one minute a day with tadpoles. <laughs> it's very very easy to feed them, and you just open the lid, put the food in, drop the lid, go on. Um, and I've only got, I've got eight tubs of tadpole, tinctorious tadpoles going. So, um, yeah, it's very, very quick on tadpoles and, uh, my misting system, you know, I've got all that automated. So, you know, as far as 
and to be honest with you, I mean, the adult frogs, and, and even my froglets too, you know, a lot of my tanks, you'll see in some of the videos, I put, you know, an older culture in the tank. It's got mites in it, and it's got larva in it, stunted flies, you know, I put, you know, probably like a, I'd say three and a half to four week old culture. I just throw them in a lot of the tanks. And, you know, the frogs will feed on them, especially, you know, I know some people hate mites. Um, I don't have any mite problems, per se. Um, some of my cultures, that, I mean, over time, you know, four or five week old cultures definitely going to have mites. But mites are beneficial for a lot of the smaller frogs. You know, when you throw a culture in a, in a familio tank, those mosquito or salarte or, you know, some of those smaller familio, the, the froglets, I mean, they, they'll munch on those things all day long. Um, and, and so while they're not beneficial as far as, or nutritional, I should say, for the frog, it gets them in the habit of eating regularly. And, you know, there's springtails in there too. So they're eating on springtails, which also don't have much of a you know, vitamin intake. As you, you know, you can dust some, but um, the majority of them are not dusted with any vitamins. So mites and springtails, while they, they get the, you know, they get those baby frogs in the habit of eating, and then when you graduate them to flies, it's just they, they grow much better, much faster. Um, so, I, I you know, I can realistically leave, not even go in the frog room for four or five days and come back, and I'm sure it would pretty much look like, you know, nothing's changed. The frogs are still going to be fed. They're still going to be breathing. They're still going to be, the plants are going to, you know, you can, I can leave for, for multiple days at a time and they'd be fine. But I, I just, I like being out here so much that, that I spend a lot of, you know, I just come out here at night and I'm out here usually, like I say, from eight or nine o'clock. I'm not always just, I mean, I watch TV out here. I play video games. I've got, this is like my little man cave. Um, but you know, I like coming out here. I'd say I'm out here from like eight to eight or nine o'clock at night till two in the morning, sometimes three in the morning every night. And, uh, yeah, that's, but that's just because I like to do that. But, you know, I definitely don't have to be out here every day. So, yeah, I, I spend about, uh, I mean, probably about an hour every day. I come yeah. home, I feed, yeah. I make cultures. I kind of just like to give everything the once over just to make sure that, um, you know, everything is, you know, everything's, everything's eating. Nothing needs yeah. like extra attention. I mean, one of the things I was going to ask you is, um, like, what do you do like when you see a frog that's underweight and like might need a little bit of extra extra attention? So if it's first, for, I'll I'll feed it immediately. I'll I'll put food in there and just watch it. If it's not eating, then I know it's it's got a bigger bigger issue. If it's eating and it's still underweight, um, you know, if, say for you know I, I keep an eye on it over a week or a week and a half, and it's eating a lot of food and it's not putting weight on. Then I know it needs some sort of, of dewormer, which most of us in the hobby use fenbendazole or panicure is the same thing. Um, you just dust some flies and feed it, you know, 15 or 20 flies uh, one day a week for three weeks, and um, usually that it does it does quite a bit, and you'll see frogs, you know, turn around and, and start packing the weight back up. Hmm. Um, I've also seen frogs that have that have had worms and they'll live for years. They'll just be skinnier. They're just thinner frogs. Um, and, and they breed and do everything normally, but they, you know, they've got, got some worms in there and they, but they go live for, for years and like that. Um, but now, if, you know, if I've got a frog that's not eating and it's very thin, then you've got issues. Usually that's, that's something like bacterial infections and, 
you can try and treat with atrial and stuff like that, but um, a lot of times it's those are those are the tough ones when they just won't eat. It's it's you feel hope helpless. It's just like I'm 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 trying springtails. I'm trying larva, hydei, melanogaster, wingless, dusted, undusted, any and they just won't eat. You know, and it, it, you you separate them out of the tank and you're treating them, just hoping that one of these days it will start eating again and pack the weight on back. But a lot of the times that's just not the case. And, you know, it's it's just part of the hobby again. You know, it, it, these things happen, and there's not much you can do about it um, sometimes. But you know, I feel like as long as you're trying and you're doing all the right things, then then that that's all you can do. You know. Yeah. Sometimes it's you know. I mean, I, I've lost a few frogs here and there over time, and yeah. It, it, I mean, me personally, I, I I always blame myself. Had I done something differently? Had I had I interceded? A few days earlier, a few, um, but it, it is kind of invariable that you are going to have frogs that just for whatever reason do fail to thrive. Yeah. And that's yeah. not to say that they're disposable or anything like that. It's just, it, it, it is just kind of a fact of life when it comes to keeping, I mean, yeah. they're, they're very dog, sensitive. Yeah. I mean, dog frogs are on the whole, you know, hardier now that we have, you know, we have captive bred populations. We're not relying so much on individuals that are stressed from, you know, from importation, et cetera. But I mean, they're still fragile, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of liken them to. Um, I mean, it's it's even like like tropical fish, you know. It's yeah. they're they're yeah. they're fragile. They're not as forgiving of you know husbandry errors and of. I mean, they're also on the whole pretty tiny. So, yeah. um, you know, it really doesn't take much. You know, one of the things you know I, I talked to, um, you know, like I, I was talking to Travis of TCS. Um, yeah. A couple episodes back, and we were just kind of talking about stressors, you know, in the terrarium, yeah. and how there's a lot of, yeah. th- there's a lot of things you can, you're just you're not going to see, you know. Like if you have yep. two individuals that just don't happen to be compatible, one of them might just be very very weak, and it might not yep. be able to handle being intimidated behaviorally by another frog, and then. You're not gonna. I mean, you're gonna see it. It's gonna come out. Okay, I see both frogs out, but that one might not necessarily be eating as much as it needs. And then right. it, it gets. You know, it, it's just. It's like unless you're like looking at them 24 hours a day, it's so hard to see every little dynamic that's unfolding. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's so true. Um, and I mean, you know, I I know stories of some of the large obligates. You think because their size and everything and how bold they are that they're. You know, really, some of them can be resilient, but there, there's there's stories. I've talked to some guys that just moving them to a different tank um, stresses them out so bad that they just they die. Like within, I mean, it's a perfectly healthy looking frog, healthy weight, and they get so stressed out, they seize up and they they die. Yeah. The stress just gets to, and it's just, you know. So, and it, it yeah, you know, it just drives you nuts because some of these frogs, you know, you're like you're so expensive and you're spending all this money and that they can just die like that. And I mean, I mean, I have a story like I shipped a, a yellow lamani out. Um, I took pictures of it the day I was shipping it, shipping it in the container. Um, it, its front arms were completely straight. Um, you know, no metabolic bone disease, no rubber wrists, nothing. Looked perfect, healthy weight. Shipped it within a matter of like 14 hours. Um, the frog just didn't work. It, it didn't, it didn't move correctly at all. The back legs were just not working right. And I mean, I was watching, this frog was eating dusted, dusted fruit flies, 
dusted Heidi eye. It was a you know six month old uh, yellow Lamani, and you know watching it eat these dusted Heidi eye and yellow Lamani, by the way, are my absolute favorite frogs. So they hold a special place for me. And um, so I'm like I'm always reluctant to ship them because I just want to keep them all. Um, and the, the frog, it just it broke my heart because I knew that in my tank that I had 14 hours ago, it was perfectly healthy, growing perfectly. And the front, it broke its front arm in the cup. I mean, the guy showed me like in the cup when he opened the lid, he took a picture like, and it's, its front arm was com- completely broken. Um, they stressed, it, it got so stressed out in shipping and I'm not blaming FedEx or anything. I mean, some frogs just do not take to shipping well at all. Uh, especially with large obligates, again, they can get so stressed out. Um, and, you know, I obviously I replaced the frog with another Lamani. Um, but, but yeah, it just, you know, I was just so upset about that. That, that That's the first time that um, a, a frog that I shipped, you know, or a, a, a large or an obligate that I shipped just didn't do, didn't do well or, or came in. And basically, it, it died in, I think, 12 days. He was trying to treat it with all sorts of different ringer solution and calcium gluconate and all these things. But it just, he said every time he went in the tank, it started seizing up. It got so stressed out when he would open the tank and go in there, it would seize up. And, and I mean, I've seen Pamilio, Pamilio seize up on me. Um, some people attribute it to a, a, a calcium deficiency, but, you know, some of the Pamilio that I've seen seize up on me, they were eating lots of dusted flies that had calcium on them. Um, I mean, I washed it. So, you know, I, I, the day before I'm washing the meat, dusted cal- dusted flies, and the calcium was, you know, a week old. It's not like it was like, out, out, to, out of date or anything like that. Um, so it's just, you know, some of these frogs, it's just every frog is different, just like every human being is different. Um, some some take well to ship and some don't, and stress on certain frogs is just, it's, it's life or death for them, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, it's just, you know, you, you just never know. Yeah, it, it's I've had that experience too. I had um, it was actually one of the things that really kind of deterred me from Familio. I had um, a couple of years back, I had acquired um, a pair of blue jeans, and they they were imports, and they looked good. I, I mean, I had a couple to choose from. I looked, I was like, okay, well, these two look, they look good. I housed them in um, pretty decent sized tank. It was actually a um, like a vertical hex aquarium that I had just, mm-hmm. you know, I'd converted over to, to keep them in. And they did okay for, you know, uh, a couple of weeks. And then they kind of started to lose weight. So I'm like, all right, let me move them to something a little bit smaller and try giving, you know, giving them a lot of springtails and whatnot. And they just, they didn't come around. They just sort of, despite all my efforts, they just kind of failed to thrive. So for yeah. me, it was just really discouraging because it's like, well, I had these animals come in and they looked, they were in great condition. And... Yeah. It, I mean, on a personal level, I feel like I, I failed, you know, and I always take it really, really hard, like when I am responsible for the care of something and it just fails to thrive. But yeah, there's so many factors that we're never going to see. Like, I mean, the impact of stress is just it's 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 immeasurable. I mean, I've seen oh, yeah. um, I, I had a clutch of froglets, which we, we discussed off air. We should have recorded everything while we were off air, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I had a, a clutch of froglets that just um, these were um, these were tinctorious, but they kind of just failed to thrive. And then I was like, okay, well, 
let me kind of separate them out of this grow out and I'll put some of the larger ones in and it's like they they just they seize up immediately as yep. soon as you like yep. as soon as you transfer them then it's like well all right now I kind of know that if they don't make it through the transfer they never would have made it to begin with so it's right. it's such it's such a slippery slope yeah especially with the wild caught stuff I mean they go through a, a just shipping and, and just it's it's I tend not to, to work with wild caught stuff I mean I've got a couple indirect things from some friends that were you know strictly imports from 2012 like I just lost my uh, Solarte mail it was from 2012 and you know that's it's and that's eight years right there but it's wild caught you have no idea how old that frog was you know yeah it was caught as as an adult male not a you don't know if it's young or old it, that, that frog could have been eight years old when it was caught mm-hmm. you know you, we, you, it's just so you like i'm i'm thinking like is something wrong in that in that tank it's something because it it had a really nasty like wound on its underside um and their tank's full of leaf litter it's i have vents open it's not super humid in there so i know it's not like i'm looking i'm gonna keep it too wet but then, like, I look at all the other frogs. There's four froglets in there. There's the, the female. All look perfect. And I'm like, you know, I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. It's just something that happens. And being that that frog was wild caught, I don't know how old it was. And I was talking to uh, Dr. Oz, um, you know, and he's saying, you know, he's seen stuff like he's – I sent him pictures. He's like, yeah, I've seen stuff like that before. He's like, usually that's just they, – they, it starts out as a tiny little scratch or a cut. They, they cut themselves on a bromeliad or anything, and then it just gets infected, and then it becomes a bacterial infection, and it wreaks havoc on the frog. Um, and it was, I was treating it with silver sulfidiazine cream, but the stress, I think, of me going in there every day and applying this cream twice a day to its underside and having to turn the frog upside down to, to apply that, um, I think that's what got it in the end was, was the stress. Because when I, when I found it not alive, it was... Um, Eating, it was still plump, but it was just, yeah, just, I think the stress got through it. So I'm guessing it seized up, and I didn't see it. But, yeah, it's, you know, these, it's, you know, some of the things are just out of your control. And, you know, I, I like to blame myself, too, and think I'm doing something wrong. But you can definitely, you can go crazy and overthink it when you, when you do that. Um, and you'll drive yourself nuts, and you just got to realize that these are frogs, and, and they are very sensitive, and, and the slightest thing, like stress, can just, can make them go upside down and and it's it just happens yeah i mean it's it's i mean anybody who's been in the hobby and kept multiple individuals usually knows that it's it's unfortunately it's a possibility that can always be there but you know and and i mean another thing to consider is that you know when you're dealing in like large numbers of, of a relatively fragile organism not all of them are going to thrive i mean that's right the reason that they I mean, well, I really let me preface that by saying they don't necessarily produce large clutches the way, um, like certain other frogs would. Like, like um, I'm just trying to think of a good example. Of course, it's a frog podcast. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, let's just say <laughs> terrible like, to lay, lay large clutches. I'm not even talking about dart frogs. I'm just talking about oh, about oh, okay. other species of frogs. You know, um, sure. we'll, we'll, many will lay thousands and thousands and thousands of eggs in the hope that oh, yeah. you know i mean like for like american toads they're going to have a very very yep. large clutch and hopefully maybe two three or four of those will survive to adulthood and reproduce right. i mean it's not that they're dropping 
one massive clutch at a time, they're dropping smaller clutches, but over and over and over and over again. So not oh, every yeah. one of those offspring is just is statistically is going to thrive, despite exactly. all of our efforts to, you know, to, yep. to contravene that. Yeah, well, that's all we can do is just try our best and do whatever we can to, to yield the healthiest animals. Um, yeah, it's, it's inevitable. Not all of them are, you know, going to make it. And if some don't, you know, you can't you can't beat yourself up. It's just, it's part of, you know, it's, it's just, it's part of it. It's part of the hobby. Mm, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of winding down now. So, I mean, yeah. before we, before we wrap up, um, I know there's, there's going to be a couple of topics that we didn't, we're not going to quite get to, but, um, you wanted to mention you, t- how you how you keep your tadpoles. I think that was something that you wanted to yeah. cover before we kind of wrapped up. Yes. So I, yeah, I touched base on it quickly um, before, but um, yeah, I guess I'll probably take a couple minutes talking about it. But um, so so yeah, I keep I, I do all my tinctorious and uh, communal tubs, um, and the the containers I just use the, like Sterilite tubs that are like twenty, I think they're twenty by by sixteen by seven, um, and in that size um, I can keep about. I've had up to 80, 80 to 90 tadpoles in one of those tubs. Um, and I just, um, I recently started actually using a substrate. I used to not use anything, but I've been using the um, ADA Amazonia just to keep the water, like, really, really clear. Um, but I throw a bunch of almond leaves in there, and a sponge. I have sponge filters in every one of them, just so it's filtered water and stays really clear. And um, I feed that Rapache Soylent Green, and, you know, I just... Every day, I'll put in a little chunk, you know, if it's half a teaspoon. If I've got 90 tadpoles in there, I'd throw a whole teaspoon of it in. Um, it, you know, it makes like a little puck. You make a little gel out of it. Um, you just scoop it out with a teaspoon, throw in a little puck, come back the next day. And if it's gone, give another teaspoon. If it's not gone, don't feed them that day. Um, just like fruit flies, you know, or frogs, if you see a ton of fruit flies crawling around, they don't need food that day. If there's no flies, give them some food. Um, so same same idea there. But what I've noticed, because I used to do everything individually, and what, I, what I've noticed, um, I guess before I even say that, um, one of the, the, the biggest advantages to the, the tadpole tubs, the way I'm doing it, is, I mean, I throw tadpoles that are one day fresh out of, out of their egg or, you know, still in the Petri dish. I'll throw them in with tadpoles that are 60 days. Um, and I, I've noticed that, you know, the, the tadpoles, for me, my temperature, my water temperature is around 70, 73 to 74. Um, at that temperature and the way I'm doing it, I usually have frogs morphing out around 60 days. Um, and they're morphing out way bigger and way stronger and ready to take larger larger prey items um, way faster than the when I raise them individually. Um, so, I mean, you can have tadpoles morphing out that day and you could have fresh tadpoles going in that day, uh, in the water. And I don't notice much cannibalism. I'm sure it happens, but I'm just going to say I probably have 90% come out. Um, you know, you're not going to get every one of them, but um, yeah, it's, I don't like, I guess to make an example, I don't notice when I put fresh ones in, I don't see like the next day or the next week, I don't see like the tadpoles chomping on these other tadpoles, the fresh tadpoles, because they're basically trained to eat that that puck, and they'll they'll swarm around that puck of swarm and just snack on that all day. 
and you have enough um, almond leaves in there where they can hide and everything. But um, by far, the the quickest and easiest method of, of rearing tadpoles I've ever done, and the results are unbelievable with how strong these you know, these these tadpoles. I'll see them on the morphing cup, like you know they've come out of the water. I'll go to set them in the tank, and they hop out of the cup into the tank like 12, 12 to fifteen inches. I mean, there's no problem for them one day out of the water, which when I had them individually, it, that just wasn't a possible. That wasn't happening. <laughs> so, that's uh, yeah, the results are just just unbelievable. Um, you know, for me, it's a no-brainer. You know, but I'm also not raising every tadpole and every egg, and I don't. You know, I'm not trying to get as as many as possible. You know, I just do a, a, a fair number um, that I want to raise, and because you know, I'm not not really a business. So. Gotcha. Cool. Yep. Um, any final thoughts or anything before we? Before we uh, I don't up? think. I, uh, uh, I mean, I've listened to your show before, and uh, I know you usually talk about flies with people. So I was gonna, um, yeah, I was gonna ask you that. Just like last last shot. So is it gonna be yeah. Heidi or Melanogaster or both? So, so I do both. I do wingless and I do golden Heidi. But what I'm a little different from what I've heard from everybody else, including yourself too. I don't make cultures every week. I do 20 cultures once a month. <laughs> really? And that's all I That's it. Okay. Yep. I do 12 Heidi and 8 wingless, or the golden Heidi and 8 wingless um, once a month. And, and I I don't have an issue. You know, the frogs, and, and just like I guess they would in nature, you know, they're going to have times where they're not getting as much food, and they're going to have times where there's just tons of food coming in. Um and so it goes, it's, that's sort of how mine goes. I mean, when I get the, the, the booms, I mean, they're getting tons of food for, you know, two and a half weeks. And then there's a couple of weeks where they get just substantial amounts of food, but nothing crazy. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the way I have it. My, my collection is completely fed off. 20 cultures at this stage. I've thought about increasing because of the terribilis. I've got 10 mints that could eat, eat me out of the house. So, um, I thought about adding a, a couple, maybe two or three cultures of Heidi Eye, but, um, yeah, that, that's what I'm doing for now. And it's working out. Cool. Definitely, definitely yep. efficient. So, yep. all right. Yep. I want to, Troy, I want to thank you again. It was a real pleasure having you on the show. And, Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me. No, I, uh, we, you know, we didn't get to quite cover everything, but I think maybe in another episode, if you're, you know, if you're willing and able, we could tackle a couple more. Yeah. yeah right. I'll chat. I'll chat for as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. All right, so um, just thanks again to all the listeners out there. It's really, you know, you guys are what makes this so rewarding. And um, we got some good things coming up. This was episode 10, so see you on episode 11. Bye.